Hi, I'm Anka, and this is the place to be to hear about the latest Web3 trends in healthcare. On today's episode, I talked to Jim Nasser, CEO of Accor, a technology company building blockchain-based software mainly for the healthcare industry. Jim's academic and professional background is in technology. He has been an entrepreneur for over 20 years and has previously worked for the CDC as chief software architect. He is perhaps one of the most knowledgeable people in the blockchain and health space. And today, he accepted to share with us some of the most exciting lessons he learned from the past 10 years in this space. Today's episode is in partnership with the leading journal, Blockchain in Healthcare Today. Welcome into the MetaHealth. Jim, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Actually, looking through my inbox, I realized that we've known each other for almost six years. The first time I reached out to you, you were still working at the CDC, and today you are the CEO of a leading blockchain company. You have been in the tech space for a very long time. What is it about distributed ledger technologies, and blockchain in particular, that made you leave your previous job and create your company? Yes. Yes. Thanks, Anka. Yes, it's been a number of years and, of course, a pleasure to have worked with you over this course of time. You know, to be honest with you, I don't think it was a DLT or blockchain kind of trigger that kind of ended my tenure at the CDC. I think where I was at, uh, I felt that in a short time with a small team, we had accomplished a lot, you know, what, what amounted to or led to Open CDC. And a lot of like really interesting and, and imp- I felt like impactful work to, to get there. But then we kind of hit a phase or would have hit a phase where I think a lot of the the policy and, and some of the other supporting mechanisms needed to be in place. And at that time, around 2018, I really felt like there was more to do. Uh, I felt like, um, you know, with the team, particularly with the core team that we had, that there were some really interesting problem areas, particularly things that I came across at the CDC around global health, around other public health type things, reporting, unfortunately, things that, that we saw in abundance during the COVID period in 2020 in particular. So I felt like there was opportunity for, for innovation. And I kind of feel like there is a dearth of innovators with, with real subject matter background uh, and, and real technical expertise in the healthcare space. So uh, I felt like, you know, we need to put, you know, kind of our proverbially speaking, put our money where our mouth is. So that's that's really what led to leaving the CDC. And, and then, of course, I'm, I have a lot of affinity for the CDC uh, and public health uh, in general still uh, and work still within that space in, in some shape or form. But but really, that was the genesis is to kind of strike out and see if we could um, make a little bit of just progress, you know, in our own little corner of the world. And then blockchain, you know, is one of the things that um, I discovered actually during the CDC and, and realized that it really can become a source of truth, a source of authenticity for a number of use cases, not just in public health, but many other areas, pharma, you know, global health uh, and, and so on. So that was it. That was the motivation. And, you know, that's been the hook. On a recent episode of the Shifting Privacy Left podcast, you talk about why you became interested in distributed ledger technology in the first place. You explain that data in healthcare is siloed and that prevents us from properly tracking it, verifying the source, and maintaining its integrity. Now, looking for a solution to these problems, you came across DLTs. So I have two questions for you. 
The first one is that it seems like data provenance is often an overlooked topic in healthcare. Can you explain why this is such an important subject to you? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, again, to be clear, when I talk about siloed data, that is that's a statement that's certainly accurate here in the U.S. And of course, U.S. is a massive healthcare, you know, kind of organization or systems and kind of uh, body of, of work and, and different entities involved. Um, it's not necessarily the case everywhere. If you happen to have, I know much of Europe, you know, you have universal healthcare and, and one government, typically government-supported healthcare system. That may be a little bit different, at least at the conceptual level. But certainly in the U.S. is a big issue, you know, for as a simple example, you know, my health record, you know, as, as Jim, you know, could be on or is on at least four different systems, but there's no one way of, of linking across all of them. You know, it's very likely that my name is recorded in different ways, you know, across them misspelled, that there are different IDs and things like this, but still it's just one of me, right? That it's not like I have quadrupled. So, you know, when you need to get your health data as a patient, and it's not just a patient thing, it's also uh, around, for instance, public health reporting, you know, where the data is owned by the states, but it needs to be reported at a national level and perhaps even international level. So the underlying problem is you, you need to be able to really very quickly and, and efficiently verify where the data is coming from, if the data is, is what you need, and if not, where to get it from. There's many different sources for any, any particular data. You know, can you do it in a where you, you can really impute trust and authenticity? which is a very, very difficult thing. And, you know, and, and in my experience, many times the way that's done in reality, now, now what people think about or talk about, you know, is through duplicative work where, where people do a lot of manual steps, highly inefficient, error-prone, human-based. And as a result, you know, you, you wind up with things that are broken, systematically broken, inefficient, bloated, you know, frankly, huge amount of administrative costs, it leads to, I mean, a real impact to actual patients where the healthcare is, is subpar, certainly compared to the amount of investment that's provided, uh, you know, in the system. So all of these reasons re- really kind of play into this, this world of, well, how do we if, we, if we, if we do know that there is siloed data, how do we show authenticity and provenance? Where, where, who touched what when? Because that's really important. You know, in the U.S., the, the terminology, particularly with government data and health data, is around chain of, of custody. You know, and that's certainly important when it comes to certain areas of, of, of healthcare and, and, you know, um, state data, federal data for reporting purposes. So that's really the, the way I see it is, is you can Im- impute this kind of computational trust and authenticity and verification if you can build and really abstract blockchain technologies correctly. Now, there's a lot of ifs, you know, and, and conditional work that, that you have to get right. It's, it's not a blanket statement, right? Just because you have blockchain, it doesn't mean that you're not going to create more silos. In fact, if you do it poorly and design it poorly, most likely you're just going to create really a sexier silo. You're just going to call the blockchain, you know, silo, and, and that just doesn't help anything. So, you know, it's, it's not a silver bullet. You have to really think it through. You have to build it correctly, but it can be done. And I think we have certainly proven it. Other people have as well, that if done correctly, you can do it. So it just works behind the scenes. Um, and, and you don't have to make, you know, big song and dance about it. You don't have to like grandstand about all of the blockchain things that you do. They just work. And then 
maybe all you see, and this is what we do in our applications, we provide like a verified, a green check that basically shows on demand that the data is, is actually verified through a public ledger. And if you want to see the details, you can click on it and, and see all the cryptographic details. But that's the way we kind of think about it. That's the underlying problem that we think DLT can partially you know, help, uh, help with. Well, my second question was, how do DLTs help? But you already answered that one. But maybe to be more specific, what is the value of blockchains exactly? A lot of people say it is data integrity. Others say it's data security or privacy. So which one is it? Yeah, we're kind of getting into the the, the cult of personality, the FTX world of embellishing things without any real, you know, kind of substance. So I like to be much more specific, Anka, as you probably know. So, what? and again, I'm going to make a differentiation between kind of a public distributed ledger, you know, uh, network and technology versus all other variations. Because to me, if it's not public, immediately you don't have that public transparency. And there's all kinds of other issues such as, uh, you know, kind of um, distributed denial of attack, uh, kind of uh, security problems and things like this. But Ultimately, I think that what the ledger can do simply, at least minimally, is provide an anchoring of transactions, you know, a public anchoring that can and should be privacy preserved. And, and there's, there's lots of ways of doing it. You can pseudonymize that data. You can have references to private databases that are, you know, it, it's like a one-way kind of cryptography, so you can't reverse engineer it. There's a number of ways of doing it. But bottom line, I think that's the minimum thing you can do. Now, security is, is a very, very big topic. Blockchain is, is inherently secure in of itself. It's, it's really cryptography. That's what it amounts to be. You know, you could do zero trust and, and zero knowledge and, and all kinds of additional ways of, of, of improving security. However, I think the germane problem healthcare isn't that, you know, because I'm not an advocate. And no, I don't think there's anyone you know, with credibility who's going to say put public put healthcare data on a public ledger. That doesn't make sense. Not now. And maybe in, in the world of, of quantum computing and uh, homomorphic encryption and things like this, it's a reality at some point, but it's not right now, right? So, so and, and also here in the U.S., just to be clear, the data is sitting and owned by these EHR systems. So even if you have patients' consent, you're not displacing the original source of the data. Like, like my, you know, kind of health app that I'm building for a patient isn't going to replace Epic and, and the, the hospital networks, you know, EHR, to be clear. So, so really security is a much bigger topic is, is really what I'm saying is, is to, to have secure healthcare, you have to look at all kinds of other elements than just blockchain. And if it's blockchain, really, yes, choose a public ledger that, that you know, is proven to use um, mature cryptographic um, methodology and, and algorithms, which is uh, which are many, but also very, very importantly, make sure that if you're putting things on the ledger, that, that you're using additional privacy-preserving techniques, such as pseudonymizing the metadata that you put on the ledger, because the ledger by definition is public. You can go and, that's one of the benefits, and it's immutable. But now if you put sensitive information there, that then divulges um, patient information or, or confidential healthcare information. Obviously, now you're creating uh, a real issue, right? So, so to me, it's, it's a it's a bundle thing. You know, it's to me the big thing is is 
use a DLT for what it's really good at, you know, and, and let's not conflate ideas because like privacy preservation isn't necessarily the same as security. It's not the same as transparency. It's not the same as purpose of a blockchain and, and provenance and things like this. They can all work together and they should, you know, in a well-designed application, a well-designed system, but they're not the same thing. You're talking about use cases. So let's move on to some applications. When we prepared this episode, you mentioned that you were working on a solution that connects patients with researchers and incentivizes patients to participate in research. Now, I would like to challenge you to present this solution to two different audiences. Those like us who are in the blockchain space and want to know how it works, and those who are users, patients, or healthcare professionals and are more interested in knowing what it does. Got it. So, so I'm, I'm actually going to answer your question in reverse order because I feel like as technologists, it's super easy for us to get into our little lingo. What, what I think of as inside baseball, as, as the American term that's used, what we're talking about, all the you know ins and outs of, of the, the esoteric tech that we're using and how fantastic it is and how it's like the fastest. And, and we're talking about consensus algorithms and all this kind of stuff. All of that, I think, is nonsense for users like like i don't know of any patient and, I, and i'm working with all kinds of patients and patient advocacy groups and honestly people who are incredibly dedicated to to saving lives they could care less about any of that stuff what they really care about is are you going to make my life easier are you going to allow me to get to the information that i need only what i need that's relevant to me not everything under the sun we think of like let, let's bring everything together, but they don't think that way because that just complicates things. Um, and, and can you, where it makes sense, is that in a way that, that provides some kind of um, either sustainability or, or incentivizes me to do, and it's not just a case of getting my information, but to do more with it. For instance, yes, if I'm going to sign up for your app, you know, and, and we have a client called Help Ready, if I'm going to sign up for that, is it just to, to get to my health record or can you perhaps you know, in a smart way, help me get to um, researchers for particular, you know, conditions and comorbidities, or, or if, if I'm suffering from like a particular kind of cancer, as example, help me connect to the community, the specific community on that. Uh, maybe if you have conditions such as you have a relapse, help me get through that because those are real life problems. That's what the people really care about. So I think usability is, is by far the most important thing that you have to get right. You know, and people expect, we're, we're very much in this consumerism world. So people expect their healthcare, and I expect, you know, my healthcare apps to look exactly like any other app, like really good app on my smartphone. So I get in, I do face ID, I log in, my registration takes a few seconds. Maybe there's a profile with some additional things. The more I engage, the more I get. And maybe I'm incentivized, especially if I'm, if I'm, being nudged to provide more information or be have more friction, I'm incentivized in some way, right? Maybe it's, it's coupons, maybe it's tokens of some kind, maybe something I can redeem, maybe it's US dollars. So that's the way we think about it from a user perspective. Now, going back to your question, blockchain, all this, you know, mumbo jumbo, I think from a user perspective, what we want to do is basically tell them, look, use our app. We're going to give you this like little you know, pretty green verified sign that, that when you look at it, you feel secure, secure in, in, in a generic sense and conceptual sense, that your data is, is real data. We, we don't make it up. 
and your data is what you consented for us to to retrieve from wherever. You know, and and and, and we're, we're a secure system that's not unethically, you know, messing up or, or taking your data and, and selling it and sharing it with other people. That's kind of what we want. And and really, that is a purpose for blockchain, you know, in, in my mind, from a patient perspective. You know, the language we use is that we abstract all of the blockchain, the token economy, you know, the, using like things like NFTs for tracking consent, all that stuff we, we abstract. We don't talk to a patient about it. We just say, look, this little green button with a check mark, you know, is, is, is a verification that all the things that, that makes our system secure can, can, is real. You can, you can, if you want to, you can inspect it if you really choose to. And there's a lot of sophisticated cryptography and technology and transparency and all these other things in there. But we certainly don't expect users to do it. We certainly don't expect users to log on to an app and have to figure out, you know, where I'm going to buy my cryptocurrency to, to exchange. I mean, none of that, right? That's insane. Right, we, we don't expect them to to like be eloquent uh, crypto people, or 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 we, we, in fact, we think that all of that is going to scare them. And same thing, actually, for not just patients, but also researchers and, and healthcare providers and, and and healthcare organizations. Largely, the, the crypto token economics, all this blockchain stuff. I think if exposed as an engineer to them, it's going to scare them. It's going to. So we want to abstract it. We want to say, look, we can prove to your works on demand anytime you want. We can literally per transaction, anytime you want, show it to you. We can provide these beautiful audit reports and things like this on demand. But we're not going to like like put it right in your face. You know, if, if you want it, there, there's a little elegant way for us to get there. So that's, that's the second part of your question. The first part in terms of like, how do we do it and with, with like blockchain-y, I guess more more blockchainy uh, explanation is is really what we're looking at is for, as, at the most basic level this idea of data sampling, which is any transaction that we think is of relevance, and it's not every single transaction. Uh, you could do it if you wanted to be that you know kind of wide scale, but but we think that the ROI is more about certain kinds of transactions. For instance, consent. Consent, as you know, in, in pharma is like you can't do a clinical trial without consent. And, and more and more, you, you get into this area of dynamic consent, you know, and reconsenting and, and continuity of consent and all this custodianship of consent. So critical that that event is captured correctly on, on the on the application in the backend database, but also there's transparency. Uh, and this is our theory on a public ledger that, that proves, yes, at some point, you know, Jim provided consent for some transaction, you know, and, and if what is that some transaction, if you have the right permissions, uh, or, or, or you're the auditor or, or the, the regulator, you can go and look at it with permission from the private database, right? So basically this idea of data sampling on transactions that matter, any kind of right, any kind of synchronization, any kind of consent, we, we think all that is relevant and is cost justifiable, especially if you use the right blockchain. If you, if you do it you know, on, on Bitcoin network, it won't be because you know, it'd be very slow and it'd be very expensive. But if you use technologies like Hedera, which is what we're using, it'll be super fast, It'll be very, very cheap and it can be justifiable. So the next step from like data sampling is, is looking at, okay, well, can we, for instance, using the, the I'm, I'm going to simplify, using the, the metadata and indexing capability of a ledger, provide some additional information that's useful for searching, for provenance, for chain of custody, such as not, not just basic things of like, like, like Jim's cryptographic signature, but things such as, what is the category of data? Is it consent? What is the function? Is it a delete consent? You know, is it a 
EHR sync? You know, is it like by region, whatever? Something that's privacy preserving, yet it's informative enough for search and indexing and, re, you know, being able to query at an aggregate level. And then finally, this area of, of what I was talking a little bit earlier, that, that you could take certain other kinds of data or metadata and you could pseudonymize it, such as your account ID, uh, as example, or such as your, your condition or, or such as the, the um, you know, like the, the healthcare network that you're associated with. And then not put that out there in, in clear text, but but anonymize it, pseudonymize it and provide that that transparency again is very useful, uh, but it doesn't divulge information. And then finally, I think the, the next step, if you really wanted to go, is is use technologies such as non-fungible tokens to associate, for instance, data sets. Like we have one client we're working with, and they're taking uh, using smart cameras. They're taking eye scan data. They want to use NFTs to associate that data to the person and any iterations thereafter. But then use the data in kind of a open research marketplace type scenario with patient consent, and then the NFT becomes the anchor that provides the reference to the, the, the kind of the authenticity of the data. So it's a, it's a data authenticity play. So those are some of the ways of, of kind of going about it. If you're thinking about the how and a little bit more at the below the, the, you know, below the surface level. Well, talking about NFTs, I find it difficult to explain what the use cases in healthcare are because most people imagine NFTs as this pieces of music or pictures that they see everywhere. So what are for you the most exciting NFT use cases in healthcare? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a little bit frustrating to be honest with you, Anka, because I think a few years ago, two, three years ago, before you know there was this craze of, of NFTs in, in, in what we're com- now, I think, are seeing you know, um, at, at the consumer level, board apes, music, things like this. Really, it was just a simple, it's, it's, it's something, it's a non-fungible token, which is really, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a unique identifier. That's really what it is. It's a long, you know, hash number. And, and if you're using, for instance, Hedera, that number will be unique. There will never be another number, right? And it's indivisible, it's globally available. So, but then since there, of course, you know, in the last year, year and a half, there's been this, this massive boom of NFTs associated to like JPEGs primarily, but, but other kinds of media, video, music, things like this. And I think my frustration is, is that those use cases have like taken everybody's attention on, on what, what an NFT is versus like many other, you know, more mundane use cases or different kind of use cases. And, and frankly, what the original idea is. So going back to your question, I think very, very simply, you can use an NFT, this unique uh, indivisible global identifier to point to something that, that then you want to be able to uniquely reference, such as consent. Consent is a good example. It's one that, you know, it, it's very prevalent in healthcare. You know, it's one that we use on pretty much every one of our applications. So very simple. When, when you go into like the Help Ready app, when you consent to use the app, we create an NFT, Right, that the NFT basically is, is a reference to the time, you know, the, the data stamp and, and the, the cryptographic signature that was generated to say that you know uh, Anka actually did consent to use this app, right? And and then when that consent expires, like maybe it's after thirty days, or maybe when you choose to expire it, then we show a transaction on the NFT that says. So, so the first transaction it was that NFT was created simply. Second one was that you know it was um, it was revoked. 
you know, and then if you go back in again, we can restart it as an example, right? So that's one example, but then a little bit more useful examples or, or more interesting examples are, you know, again, when you, for instance, choose to consent uh, to share your data in, in different ways, right? You know, part of your data, maybe it's just your basic health data, maybe it's your demographics, maybe it's an anonymized version uh, of some of them, maybe it's an aggregated version. All of these are relevant in, in the world of pharmaceuticals, clinical research, statistical research, you name it. So tracking those, uh, to me, I think, allows ethical usage of, of that data, but also, frankly, the opportunity to reimburse and, and incentivize patients and say, look, you know, we're, we're not going to take, you know, 50 million records from Ascension Health and run all day I will want on it without anybody knowing about it, right? You know, that's a real situation. We're going to specifically ask you, and we're going to tell you if and when that data is used, how it's used, by whom it's used, the, the, the chain of custody, the provenance. That's to me, that is the ethical step forward when, when you can take the some of the benefits of, of quote web three or you know blockchain technologies in this case and apply it to real healthcare use cases. So, you know, again, we have some other more exotic, you know, kind of like like data set tracking and, and unique data set variations and, and you name it tied to, to NFTs. But, but fundamentally we think of it as can we use it in, in the healthcare context to represent things that, that really by nature are either shared or shareable. They need to be shared. They need to be reported on in various transformation and make it ethical and make it efficient. What I find interesting in what you're saying is that a couple of years ago, most of the conversation in healthcare was around understanding how blockchains work and what they can do. Today, the conversations have evolved a little bit and most people start wondering what value blockchain-based technologies can bring to their organization or to patients or to healthcare providers. So I know this is a tricky question and it's really hard to find a precise answer, but what are some of the things we can use to evaluate the value provided by blockchain-based solutions? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's one that we often, get, I think of it as a so what question, right? Because I mean, all of us can wax lyrical about how good a particular technology is and how it's the fastest consensus algorithm known to man and, and this, that, the other. Uh, but, but really that's, that's just us drinking our own Kool-Aid that doesn't move the needle, right? You know, and, and I think, unfortunately, Anka, and, and you know this well, if you look across the, the blockchain use cases, not the theoretical ones, but the, the real ones, like 98% is financial services, right? You know, it's, it's another DeFi solution. It's another, you know, like ICO, cryptocurrency, scam coin. I mean, largely. So, so that's pretty sad because that kind of means that we, you know, we're, we haven't really kind of got to the next level of, of innovation and, and frankly, utility and, and usefulness, right? So, so people like, like myself or us in this space haven't really answered your question well enough. So I think this idea of, of tracking ROI is hugely important in the real world once you get past proof of concept and, and you know, silly like demoware. So to me, again, in the US, I kind of feel like honestly the, the, the bar is very, very low because we're so incredibly bloated in healthcare, so incredibly inefficient. There's so much administrative cost. There's so much opaqueness. There's just so much kind of like that, that could be done with just slight improvement in the fitness model could be done better and save literally millions, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. So to me, 
you know, is, is looking at, let's take the consent example, right? If you need to, for, for compliance reasons or for policy reasons, if you need to capture consent, track it and use it in any kind of meaningful way, how do you do it now and how costly is it? In most cases, it's on paper. You know, there's a cast of people involved and there's significant amount of kind of duplicative work, right? And and also, if you care, and, and all, pretty much every healthcare CEO, this is the first thing they say, you know, we're, we're patient-oriented, we care about the customer, things like this. In my experience, it's largely wordplay. You know, it's, it's largely, you know, just them placating almost themselves without any real commitment to actually do that. You know, and it's, it's almost, it's so evident. All you have to do is call your, your healthcare provider or your, your hospital and you realize how bad that is. But, but regardless of my jadedness, if you care about customer service and, and satisfaction, that's another element. So it's, it's not just about the financial piece and, and, and like what, what is your cost now? How many people do you use? If you can track that and many people don't, and how can you lower it by using this more automated, more blockchain-centric approach? But also, can you improve your customer satisfaction? Because frankly, instead of taking five days at times or, or five hours, you could verify, for instance, that that consent for something you know you know is is there and it's valid within seconds, and and it's it's legitimate because the the ledger shows. That was the very last transaction, maybe site on NFT, like, like we're talking about. So to me, the first thing to do, going back to your question, is what, what does the current state look like? You know, and, and, and if you can track that. And, and honestly, in my experience, if people are honest, if the organizations you're working with, they're honest with, with the situation, they will admit that it's like almost every case, not every case, but almost every case, it, it could be way more efficient, right? It could be done better better for them to save money, lower their costs, lower, lower headcount, and frankly, give their people more interesting work to do than, than chase paper around and chase faxes around, and also improve customer satisfaction. But that's the first thing. The second thing then is, is to say, all right, well, let's, let's take a slice of this. We, can, we can't take everything. We can't take like, you know, uh, 5 million people. As an example, we we're talking to one of the big testing companies, you know, and they were talking about 170 million patient consents for testing, you know, like COVID testing. Well, Nobody in the right mind would want to wait until, like you know, we've implemented a, a system for 170 million people. That that's crazy. But you could start with like 5,000, you know, w- within a month or two months, and then look at at what the actual w- what you're seeing as costs, your operational costs, including the initial development investment, plus the customer satisfaction, and see if that that jives with what your historical records look like. That's really the direction we're going, to be honest with you, because I think that's a very, very important question that has to be answered by, by people like, like you and I and other folks in this kind of space. Because I think rightly people are jaded, rightly there's a huge amount of noise that we have to fight through. I think some of it is honestly unwarranted. Like you and I did not sign up for somebody like, you know, SBF to, to kind of destroy the crypto market. And then for you and I to have to deal with, with customers saying, this is insane. This is crazy. You know, I'm nervous, right? That wasn't our fault, but regardless, we just need to be prepared for it because it's a space that, that requires more than just saying it's a fear of missing out. And I feel like that's been, and if you look at the, the kind of the trajectory of the NFTs, as example, we're talking about it. I mean, honestly, I think any, if anybody logically and, and rationally thought about it, 
doesn't make sense to pay $10,000 for, for a JPEG that, I mean, quote, sell it. And, and the value is just, you're just listening to some dude on, on crypto and on Twitter and, and it's just going to go up forever. Does that make any sense? Or are you worried about missing out? Is there a FOMO factor happening? And I think hopefully the days of just making irrational decisions because you're, you're missing, you're worried about missing out. Hopefully those days are more numbered because I think a lot of that was happening in the crypto space. Jim, thank you so much for participating on the show. It was really lovely having you. Sounds good. Yeah, I appreciate it, Anka. It was great talking to you as always. And yeah, yeah, let's keep uh, banding together. This, this space requires it. I hope today's episode was useful. As always, I'll see you soon for another Web3 adventure in healthcare. <laughs>